I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. Today we continue our discussion of the national popular vote movement with one of its important grassroots advocates on the eastern seaboard, Ed Lopez Reyes. A Connecticut-based Republican strategist, Lopez is chief consultant of Wolf and King Strategies and served on the Joint Intelligence Operations Center, Europe Analytics Center in Imagery and Counterterrorism from 2002 through 2010. He also served on Utah Governor John Huntsman's 2012 New Hampshire presidential primary campaign steering committee and was national co-chairman of Republicans for Johnson Weld in 2016. A member of the National Guard in Connecticut, Lopez also returned from a month-long training in Louisiana. Um, congratulations and Thanks, thank you I for your service. It. Thank you. Uh, we, we appreciate it and appreciate your time here to talk about the national popular vote. Thanks movement. for inviting me. There are three states in which you've been intimately involved in the passage of the national popular vote, and you may remind our viewers what that is, too. Sure. Connecticut, New Mexico, and Nevada. Correct. So as the representative of a small state, um, which theoretically in the Electoral College would benefit... Um, from the compact. From, from the compact, uh, but also a small state in a competitive election year that would not benefit. Right. Um, we think of Connecticut now as homogeneously Democrat. It, it wasn't always that way. It may not always be that way in the future. But what is, was your argument to these three states and their constituents about why we need the national popular vote? Well, a big part of it was my experience in, uh, in uh, Connecticut. It defined my uh, perspective on, on this uh, particular bill. Um, the national popular vote interstate compact is basically a bill that state legislatures uh, can choose to pass. Um, it becomes a, a contract uh, between a number of states and when we reach the 270 uh, electoral uh, uh, college vote threshold, it activates the compact, uh, which means that the uh, election then uh, would be, uh, these states would take into account what the popular vote result is and put the weight of that result on the electoral college uh, votes that they can allocate. Um, to me, as a resident of Connecticut and as a Republican in Connecticut specifically, um, I felt that uh, the, the party, as, as in other states in New England, like Rhode Island, another state where I actually lived uh, and was active in the party for a while, I used to work for Senator Chafee, ran for office there. Um, when you have a, one party that's dominating the, uh, the electoral process year after year, election after election, uh, it really, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it, it really uh, creates an environment where you're not having healthy debate. Um, you're not having healthy debate. You're not really seeing both sides of an issue as often as you should. Uh, it creates a lot of uh, policy uh, um, incongruities, in my opinion. And, uh, and so in Connecticut, when, we, when I noticed this flaw and I saw the presidential elections were being uh, uh, deployed in the state, for example, in 2012, I think we donated about $80 million to both major parties and got about $300 back. Uh, you realize that there's um, a potential for, uh, well, not a potential, there is a lack of infrastructure in, in one, of the, one of the parties, in, in one side of the political aisle. Um, when you have this, you basically have uh, very little in the way of, uh, in the form of outreach and uh, effective constituent uh, um, uh, uh, work with constituents is not very efficient. Um, you end up in a situation where uh, people are exposed to one message only. 
And it has a down-ballot effect. It's not just about the presidential election. It has an impact on the statewide offices, even the local offices. So you think that the Republican Party would be more robust if the national popular vote was adopted? As a Republican, I do, as a Republican. But I should say that one of the things that I think this bill is afflicted by in, in most of the states that we've worked in uh, is the fact that it's, it's a truly bipartisan bill. Uh, it's, uh, the word compromise has become kind of a toxic word these days. Uh, but the reality is that you have uh, a group of people that say the popular vote should carry more weight in the elections, probably the overall weight. Um, and then you have conservatives like myself who say, uh, well, we need to preserve the Electoral College for a number of reasons. Um, and I think this is one of the things that happens in the debate over this bill. Uh, you have a lot of people who say, well, we want to pass the bill because we want to get rid of the Electoral College, but that's not what it does. Um, and the reason I mention this is um, one of the challenges that we face as Republicans is making the case that the Electoral College would be preserved under the compact and, um, and also making people understand that ultimately the, 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 what the benefit is to the voters. Uh, the disadvantage right now, it, it's, a, it's an issue of the, those that are in power versus the voters. Um, you, when you say it would not erase the Electoral College, I'd use that terminology. You mean because each, vote, each state is still voting with its electors according to how the state decided. Exactly. So in effect, it's not an aberration from the Constitution. It is erasing the idea that the Electoral College can accommodate a situation in which the popular vote winner is not elected. Correct. It's an exercise in that constitutional right the state has to, uh, to vote for president. In fact, we know the Constitution has basically given states the right to decide how to uh, elect a president. Um, and taking that a step further, legislatures can decide how to allocate their electoral college votes. Um, so it doesn't get rid of the, the, that system. It just basically says, let's do it based on who wins the majority of the vote throughout the entire country. Right. And, and in effect, it, let's say in, if Iowa passed this, if Iowa voted for Donald Trump again in 2020, or let's say a future nominee in 2024, a Republican nominee, that nominee um, does not win the popular vote, but wins the state of Iowa. Um, if legislation accordingly was passed, those votes would go to the national popular vote winner and not the winner right. in Iowa. Right now, you have under 200 electoral votes in agreement. One, 189. Right. And potentially um, 195 with mm -hmm. the addition of Nevada. But in Nevada, right. <laughs> um, this summer, the governor vetoed the legislation. Um, there's also pending legislation that passed in one chamber in Maine um, and was voted down in another chamber. And these states are saying, in effect, we are more valuable in the traditional electoral college math, which is right. the state voting according to how that state votes and not how the nation votes. What would you say now uh, to Governor Sisolak uh, and potentially to Governor Mills mm -hmm. in, in Nevada and Maine respectively, who are afraid of negating the will of their voters in their respective states? Well, I think what's important to consider is when the state is a swing state, when it's one of the 12, 10 or 12 states where the presidential campaigns deploy, expend a lot of resources, and uh, make a, a worthwhile investment, those states are going to have uh, a smaller interest or uh, not much of an interest in, in adopting a system like this. Um, but those things change. You know, I mean, uh, you could probably argue that, uh, you know, 20 years ago there were more swing states. You go f back uh, further back, you have even more. 
Um, it's just the way that the culture, the political culture, uh, adjusts to the current system. Um, and so in a state like Nevada, for example, uh, they probably still feel like a very competitive state, but the reality is it's becoming a much bluer state. Uh, you have a couple of counties, basically, that have uh, become much bluer than they were before. I think that the holdout is uh, in the northwestern part of the state, you have a, a, a pretty Republican stronghold, uh, a pretty strong Republican county. Um, and they might not see the value in the same way, but the reality is once the state begins to shift in a different direction, they're going to start reconsidering. Um, and this is, is your argument, Ed, that a national popular vote makes every vote competitive. Correct. It, uh, instead of having a winner-take-all system, so one thing I try to explain to people is... Every uh, voter is a swing voter. Exactly. Uh, the, 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 the compact does not, is not an attack, uh, does not seem, seek to purge the Electoral College. That's the biggest mistake, uh, the, the biggest misinterpretation people have of the bill. Uh, what it seeks to do is to get rid of the winner-take-all system that extinguishes votes in, in different states. Um, you know, in California, the Republican votes would now count. In uh, Utah, the Democratic votes would now count. Uh, it makes those votes, it, it elevates those votes, makes them valid, gives them a voice in the entire system. Do you think, based on your work, that the Supreme Court would ultimately, if this was tested constitutionally, uphold this pact as legitimate? I feel they would because it is constitutional. We're basically trying to get rid of something that's been done at the state level, which is the winner-take-all system that we have in 48 of the 50 states. Basically, the court would be saying to these states, you don't have autonomy. Mm -hmm. You can't decide how to allocate your electors. And that would be a breach of federalism in a, in a major, a major right, sense. Exactly. So, right. I mean, th there are conservatives who, who take a different view than you in conservative, in, in adhering to the conventional mm. policy of the Electoral College. Um, but that winner-take-all concept was never ratified into the Constitution on a state-by-state -state basis except for the individual states' constitutions. Right. It wasn't until 1880 that all these states adopted the winner-take-all system. So you're make, are you yeah. making this argument in defense of federalism? It, it is. And in fact, I think the true conservative view would actually honor the perspective that there's a pliability that the Founding Fathers uh, uh, instituted through the system that we have to be able to adapt to changing circumstances. Fred Thompson, uh, Senator Fred Thompson, used to make this case. That was one of the big reasons he supported the compact. So how do you see a realistic path to 270 at this point? Because there have been some major wins in this 2019 year. Mm -hmm. um, and as I said, you know, there was a point at which you made Mm -hmm. half the delegates or half the electors, now you have more than half the electors. Right. And since Pam Wilmot of Common Cause Massachusetts joined us, um, there have been more gains. Right. How does your experience in Connecticut where this passed, mm -hmm. and they are part of the compact now, inform the way you envision a successful campaign so that by 2024 or 2028, this is actually implemented. So one of the things that I experienced was Connecticut was more difficult to work uh, on because at that point the views on this issue had cemented. Uh, legislators had kind of adopted a, a perspective on it. Um, it was really tough to reach out to constituents who had not already heard from their uh, legislators. And a lot of that came, a lot of their perspective was informed by uh, their respective echo chambers, you know, like their, uh, their, their parties, for example. Um, think tanks that are uh, uh, orbiting around those parties and uh, I think that the, the key thing is to make clear that this is a bipartisan bill, um, that this is a bill that's in the interest of voters, not of particular parties, 
that it's not a Democratic or a Republican bill. Uh, it's important to make a very strong case that this is not about getting rid of the, elect the Electoral College. It's actually a, a way to exercise the college in a way that fits the states, uh, but also the voters in particular. And, uh, and I think uh, when I look at the experiences, for example, in Nevada and New Mexico, the timing is a big thing. Um, going out and talking to the voters uh, at an early stage and let, letting them know how the bill works, uh, what it does is the most important thing. So the most critical thing, the paramount piece in this effort that I see is talking to voters. Uh, this is not about the parties. It's not about the elected officials. It's about empowering voters, whether they're Republican or Democrat. And even third-party voters uh, can find a value in this. You know, you had uh, in 2016, uh, having done the Johnson and Weld thing, they had, uh, um, I think it was three and a half million votes total, which is uh, more than the votes in each of 25 states. Now, that doesn't mean through the system you're going to elect a libertarian unless they did have that majority. Uh, but it does mean that those votes count and they have an impact on the party. I'm a libertarian Republican for the most part. So to me, it's important that the pendulum move in that direction in the Republican Party, for example. And those potential votes um, act as a spoiler in effect, um, but they are, they are determinative of an outcome because those mm -hmm. tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, you say millions of votes for Johnson and Weld, if you take a share of them and apply them in those battlegrounds that were decisive, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. Um, the election could have gone the other way. So they, Correct. they, they had a spoiling, a spoiling function, right. <laughs> but it's a democratic idea that more than one or yeah. two parties should be competitive. So Correct. you are making the argument, Ed, that it is a pro-federalism case right. for exactly. preserving the Electoral College that gives states autonomy. Um, but a major argument among the progressive or liberals who do support this is that we have an anti-democratic system now. So the will of the country writ large is, is neglected. Um, and that that is problematic. And, and that to sustain a republic or a democracy. The opponents of your efforts, the national popular vote, they, yep. they like to say, we're a republic, not a democracy, right? Uh, if you go to the founding document. Um, but do we want to have an anti-democratic or undemocratic republic? Isn't that a question we should be considering too? Well, I think the, the key thing to focus on is that uh, this doesn't have to be a partisan issue. Uh, and so the message that uh, giving more voters a say, actually all voters a say, and giving them more weight in the system um, is a democratic uh, um, ideal, um, I think it betrays what the, the founding fathers actually wanted. Um, and I mean, I think, if Madison were to see mm -hmm. the results in Bush v. Gore, sure. uh, Trump v. Clinton, right. to see you know, millions of votes denied relevance wholesale. Sure. Um, I think you make a valid point. But I think the thing to consider, too, is that uh, uh, in these cases, Democrats tend to be a, a bit more enamored with those historical um, incidents to make the case for this bill. Um, and they're not incorrect in making the case. Uh, the only thing that you have to understand is that the campaigns would have been run very differently. Um, and, uh, and, and so you'd have campaigns that would have unfolded very differently, would have paid more attention to the 50 states. Um, so we don't know that that would have been the outcome in those two elections under the compact, had it been active at that, at that point. Um, you have a candidate now, Beto O'Rourke, who is going to a lot of these non-traditional battleground states. Uh, he was just in mm -hmm. Oklahoma. Um, 
he's making a play, uh, partly, I think, because of his Texas roots and the sure. idea that he wants his party, the Democratic Party, to be competitive in the Lone Star State. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I do wonder, Ed, if you have candidates, it's a chicken and egg question, sure. if you have candidates who are not going to play by the rules of the Electoral College, maybe the folks in these states that have been neglected will wake up just by virtue of the candidates operating as if we had a democratic system that treated everyone equal. Well, I, I think the reason why people are taking the chance is 2016 it was a very bizarre election. Um, I certainly didn't think Trump had a chance of being elected. Uh, I don't even think he thought he had a chance of being elected. And, and uh, when you look at the, the blue wall, which uh, you've probably discussed, you know, the idea that there are certain states that tend to just vote democratic, uh, we know that Trump pierced the wall with Wisconsin, Michigan, and uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, so I think when you have such a large pool of Democratic candidates, they have to figure out a creative way to um, make an appeal to a much broader base or a, a, more, a more diverse base of you may, meaning geographically and in other ways too. Um, and so I think the math right now is a little bit uh, of a wild card. People are trying to figure out how to make things work, uh, what is going to make them more electable. And I think that uh, a lot of that might play into uh, the, the things that will underscore the value of having a national popular, uh, national popular vote interstate compact. Um, I think they'll underscore some of the things that would make that a, a more viable uh, system for us. Um, but I think that much of what you're talking about is a result of what happened in 2016. I think 2020 is going to be very similar. Um, I mean, with the amount of candidates running on the Democratic ticket alone, uh, I think that's going to shape the elections. Even though it's, we're talking about the primaries now, uh, it'll certainly have an impact on the overall uh, discourse, how the campaigns unfold, how they function, and eventually that's going to impact the general election too. The two candidates so far who are arguing most passionately for an end to the way the college has operated to date, uh, new rules for the Electoral College uh, in their mind are necessary, are Beto O'Rourke and Pete Buttigieg. Um, these are men who represent or did represent Texas and Indiana. Uh, I, I think that is further evidence of right. your idea <laughs> that these folks who are campaigning in non-traditional re Republican territory are making that point, and they're still going to these states now. They understand what it feels like to be left out of the electoral process at the national level, uh, but they also understand there's potential for change. I mean, uh, one of the cases that we make when we talk about the blue wall of the Republicans, so they understand, um, we make a case for Florida, uh, which is likely to become a blue state. Uh, some of us debate whether Texas will. I think it will. When you look at cities like Austin and people like uh, O'Rourke, for example, I think you see the potential for things to change in those states, uh, and that means further realignment and less swing states, uh, it, makes, it actually makes the system worse. But these candidates understand that, and that's why they're making this effort to make a different kind of outreach. And you don't think that candidates who agree with the national popular vote will be um, chastised uh, or looked down upon if they do go out and campaign all over the country? It, it, does, it doesn't matter their position on the national popular vote if they are showing that every vote really does matter to them, whether it's in the traditional electoral college system or not. I think it depends on how they articulate it. I see a lot of Democrats making the case that they want to get rid of the electoral college. Uh, Republicans don't want that. Uh, this bill, in a sense, again, it's become a toxic word, but there's a compromise value to it, which is saying, look, let's preserve the state's right to allocate the college votes as the state sees fit. Right. Um, but let's put the weight of the popular vote on that system. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really the best compromise between both parties, but the sound bites that you're hearing out there are basically uh, uh, centered around that debate. 
Beto and Pete, I think, sound more like you in making the argument. I, I, I mean, sure. to date, but you, I know you're referring to coastal mm. liberal communities that may position it differently. Um, let me ask you this. Is there a viable path for national popular vote movement efforts mm. in referenda and initiatives? Um, can it be sanctioned by individual states through that process, or are you um, only contemplating legislative uh, completion of this? Um, can Our effort is focused on legislators, and the reason why is because of the way it's set up in the Constitution. The legislators have to make that choice. Certainly, um, I would imagine a state could consult with their uh, voters through uh, referendums and things like that, but I'm not sure that's uh, something we would be involved in. But how are you going to get traction in some of these states where it's dead on arrival? That's what, well, that's one of the things that I've been helping the movement with. I go out so how, how, are you, how are you doing? I, I speak with uh, Republican Party leaders. Uh, I speak with uh, uh, activists from think tanks. I speak with people who uh, um, have run for office but haven't been successful. They're still opinion leaders in the community. So basically I'm going out there and helping the organization uh, deliver this message and uh, make it clear that what it is that we're doing. So again, I think the biggest misunderstanding is that we get rid of the Electoral College that's not what the bill is for. Understood. But what are some states that our viewers might not expect this to have traction in? Mm. Don't, you don't have to reveal <laughs> names of legislators who have said to you privately, sure. I, I'm in. But what are some states where this may get further traction? I personally feel there could be a lot of great success in states like Utah and Oklahoma, Republican states. Um, I think that, uh, that... How about any big ticket items? Big ticket not states? Not to be crass, <laughs> but you've got to get to 270. You're uh, not hitting I hear 200 you. yet. Um, that's a really good question. I think the reality is that we'd probably be more focused on the smaller states, the bigger states. Uh, you know, when I think of big states that are going to see a change, it depends on what happens in the upcoming elections. If Florida becomes a bluer state, they're going to be considering this bill because they're no longer going to be a viable state in the, in, within that swing state uh, block that, that uh, the, the presidential candidates exploit right now. Um, but you said it's a nonpartisan issue. So it is a Republican legislatures... Right. <laughs> Chambers that are in control issue. by the GOP, but so far it's only chambers that are in control by the Democrats right. that, have that have moved passed forward. Right. I mean, but we also had a lot of Democrats oppose it, like the governor, for example, in, uh, in Nevada. We just saw that happen. Right. Uh, so here in New York, Democrats, uh, a lot of them opposed the bill while Republicans and conservatives supported it. Uh, you know, so it depends on the state and what's going on and their analysis of, of how things could unfold in a presidential election. But right now, it's up to state legislatures, and, and you're saying, Absolutely. in effect, that state legislatures that have been dominated by the Republican Party have to be more co-equal representatively yep. in order for this to get to the floor. There, there have to be more active Democratic Party operations in states, mm. large, small, medium, we know that so many, you know, a supermajority uh, at one point of state legislatures um, were controlled by the GOP. So right. um, the more movement you see in co-equal representation in state legislatures, I would think you would get sure. more traction. The reason I mentioned in the, in the couple minutes we have mm -hmm. left initiatives and referenda is because it seems to me that in, we're not going to get immediate changes with respect to composition, partisan composition in South Carolina, Georgia, sure. Tennessee. So maybe if you, if you require folks to have the debate, maybe you need a, an initiative 
uh, or a, a referendum, it would be a, a vote that requires the state constitution to consider this mm -hmm. question. Um, and, and that's why I think that maybe those tools could help you legislate this. Because if, if the compact, I mean, in some states you might be able to get it on the ballot. Mm. So to close, maybe just answer these two questions. All right. <laughs> Would it be acceptable if it was approved by the people in a referendum? Would that be acceptable according to the compact rules? And second, can you use those tools to help get the debate started in the state legislatures? I think the, the answer to the second question is that that could be a catalyst to having the debate uh, become a more vigorous and robust uh, uh, piece uh, you know, in any given state. I think the, to the first question, I think that our organization is really focused on letting the states decide how they're going to get to that point. We just advocate for the compact, um, whether they choose to have referendums or anything that would uh, elevate, escalate the debate within their state. That would be up to them completely. But our, our, our philosophy uh, really is to preserve the state's right to do something. And so when we talk about constitutional changes and things like that, uh, one thing that our compact uh, states is if a state wants to pull out of this uh, agreement, they're welcome to do so. Uh, so there's a certain amount of pliability, uh, and it's a, a very conservative perspective in a lot of ways that we try to preserve. But if the uh, state constitution allows for changes to the constitution via a, a, a vote, um, among uh, South Carolinians, for instance, that would be acceptable to you. If, this, if the state governing itself says, you, the people of South Carolina, can decide if we enter into this pact. It would certainly be acceptable, um, but our mission has been focused on, on ushering legislators uh, to support the bill and to agree with the bill. So the mechanisms and the instruments that they use to get to that point is a different story. It's up to them. Exactly. Thank you for your time today, Ed. Thanks for having me on here. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.